On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. at 2213 Northern Road. I need a full assignment for a working residential fire. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one-up each other. They're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, stories from the road. Welcome to another episode of Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein. In this episode, I have the opportunity to speak with an old friend about a crash that was not only life-threatening, it turned out to be life-changing. So I'll turn the mic over to Christine and let her tell you her story from the road. Well, as Phil said, my name's Christine Daly. Um, I'm transgender. So I was born Alan Dalrymple. And I spent most of my life as him. So the story I'm going to tell you is, is really about what happened to me um, working as a paramedic. And it, it's a, a story that changed my life. So up to this story that we're going to start, I was Alan. I was a paramedic, firefighter, um, been involved in EMS since 1974. Uh, I started at 14 years old with a uh, volunteer EMS service up in New Jersey where I grew up. And as a cadet, um, I hated who I was and who I wasn't in my life, meaning I hated being a male. And the fact that I couldn't be a female. Now, back then, back in the 70s, you know, the the concept of being transgender is not as acceptable as it is today. So it was hidden. I knew since I was at a young age of five that I was in the wrong body. 
So when I got involved in this, this volunteer EMS, it actually made me feel good helping people. And it, it gave me some self-worth because I just, I mean, in that feeling of being someone who you, you, you're not supposed to be, can spiral you into you know things like self-destructive behavior. So I spent my career, my lifetime helping people. So fast forward, I'm married at the time. Um, I have a son and his mother knew about my want to be female, but because of our relationship, there was I wasn't allowed to explore that piece of me. So I had to keep it inside. So working for Gwinnett Fire and Emergency Services, I started out as a paramedic, um, paramedic firefighter, got promoted up into training. I was a training officer with them. And I was basically doing the EMT and paramedic program to the fire department personnel. Like any fire department, when new chiefs come in and people get promoted, they want to make changes, you know, for their for their purposes. And I was put back out in the field after being up there seven years with a successful program. But I was put back out into the field as a paramedic firefighter. And I accepted it. And on um, April 22nd, 2006, it was a Saturday and I'm at my station. My partner actually came from another station to fill in. And he was one of my graduates. He was one of my students from the program. And we responded to a, a sick child call. Took care of the child, transported him and his mother to the hospital. And we were on our way back to the station. And we were about a mile from our station when life changed for me. Uh, we were doing the speed limit. It was a clear day. It was around lunchtime. And this satellite Sebring came flying down the road. Now, there was a slight hill. And next thing I see is this car heading right for us head on. The impact of that crash was something that I, I never experienced. Being a paramedic firefighter, I've been in different situations, rescues, house fires, and I, I never was afraid of losing my life. At that moment of the impact, the world around me exploded. The windshield came out, and on the impact, with the front engine being you know, destroyed, my partner and I were sprayed with radiator fluid and, and oil. And, and I can smell it right now. It, it's still there. During the impact, you know, the, the violent shaking going on. We were in a big ambulance, um, an international truck frame ambulance. And during the impact, I felt the truck lurched to one side. And I was just, so many things were going through my mind, including I hope we don't flip over. 
From the moment of the impact, it seemed like it was never going to end. We traveled 210 feet after the impact. My partner, Jason, could not steer the ambulance because there was no steering mechanism. We crossed the roadway. We went up over the curb and we, we ended up settling into the wet grass 20 feet from a pond. Now, when all of this is going on, you just think, oh my God, this is it. This is the moment where it's not going not gonna to be good. So once we stopped moving, um, I looked over at my partner, Jason, and I'm looking at him and I'm going, are you okay? And he, he was just staring blank ahead of so I yelled his name and he looked at me and he goes, yeah. Well, because the, the electronics, everything is dead. I always kept my radio, my portable radio and a side holster on my belt. I grabbed the radio and I knew I kept saying to myself, you have to be calm. You can't yell. You can't scream. You have to be calm when you call this in. And we have, at the fire department, we have a main dispatch channel, and then we have a secondary channel. And I've made the decision pretty quickly to do it on the main channel because I needed everybody to hear what happened to us. I had no idea what happened to the vehicle that hit us. I didn't. All I know is that I, was, I couldn't breathe because what I found out later on was the computer that we have in the ambulance came off a mount and hit me in the chest. I felt blood running down my left leg and I didn't know if I had a broken leg or not. Both my hands hurt because I hit the dashboard. My seatbelt never engaged. So going through all this, I had to remain composed. I took a deep breath, and our unit number was Rescue 23. I just blurted out, Rescue 23, the radio, we've just been hit head on. We're both injured, and we need help. There wasn't a sound. The dispatchers didn't know what to say. Um, the only transmission I remember was our medical operational officer who was on that day. He reconfirmed, and I gave the location. He reconfirmed the location. And um, he told dispatch to go ahead and start sending units. As I sat there, I knew we needed to get out of the ambulance. Um, Jason's door was jammed. He couldn't get out. So I opened up my door, and when I stepped out and I got down to the ground level, um, I hit the I hit the ground. My leg hurt so bad. 
Jason came out behind me. He helped me get down to the curb. The sight I saw was horrific. It looked like there was an explosion. I vividly remember hearing this screeching sound of a mother running down the road because the car that hit us with the two young adults had a four-year-old in it. A four-year-old who was not in the car seat. And the mother of that four-year-old was in the other vehicle and they happened to be racing going to lunch. I saw her running down the road screaming. I hadn't seen anything else at that point. I didn't see the bodies of the two young adults. All I just remember is hearing that, that screeching sound of a mother. Jason came up to me and I told him I was bleeding and I handed him my radio and I said, go see what's going on. Though he had a cut on his leg, he was able to get his way down to the, the bad part of the scene. I'm laying on the ground on, next to the curb and this gentleman comes up to me and all I can remember is that he was tall and he had a rodeo belt buckle, a huge radio, rodeo belt buckle. So I call him the, the cowboy. And he's like, are you okay, partner? And I'm like, I'm hurt. I know there's help on the way. He said, I'm going to pray for you. And at that moment, I knew that things weren't good. Because if, if he's sitting there praying for me, how bad am I really am? Our engine, because the station I was at was an engine, fire engine, and a uh, ambulance, a med unit. The lieutenant that was normally assigned there, he was moved to another station to cover because they needed someone to fill in. So our driver engineer, who was an Army Ranger, he's riding seat. And riding seat means that he's in charge of the, the crew. The look on his face when he they showed up, he later on told me he couldn't believe the carnage that was in the middle of this road. The firefighter, who normally rides with me on the ambulance, but they kept him on the fire truck that day. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because he was young. I don't think he would have gotten over this emotionally that um, what occurred. My partner, Jason, was a former Marine and he's seen his fair share of bad things. So the firefighter comes over to me and he's like, What's going on? I'm like, I'm hurt. I'm bleeding. You need to cut my pants. He does that. There's, there's an open wound. It's bleeding. There's no bone, which is good. Again, the, my hands are swollen because I hit the dashboard. My chest hurts because I got hit with the computer. And next thing I know is I look up and there's my battalion chief. My battalion chief was having lunch with his daughter that day. And when he heard me call this in, he looked at his daughter and said, I got to go. These are my men. And when he showed up, 
he knelt beside me and he's like, you're going to be okay. And I'm like, I don't know where Jason is. I don't know what's going on. He goes, I'm not leaving you. There's other officers here. At some point, when I heard the recordings, one of the chiefs, the assistant chiefs, asked who was hurt. At some point, there was also an acknowledgement that there were two fatalities on the scene. Now, of course, during this whole event, I don't have a radio, so I can't hear all of this. But at some point, there was a little bit of confusion, and it came across the radio that Rescue 23 had two fatalities, which meant my partner and I were dead. I'm glad I didn't hear that. The crew that came to take me to the hospital, again, was ones that I had trained. The paramedic was one of my graduates. I joked with him and said, you better get this IV in me because you only got one shot. So my wife and son were at a, a school event. He was in elementary school at the time. What they had done was the battalion chief that was in the area where I lived, he went there. He was waiting for them because when they got home, there he was. Her first words were, is he dead? Because that's all she knew, is that when someone from the fire department shows up, knowing that your spouse is on duty, her words were, is he dead? And he explained to her what happened. He drove her to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, they were ready for us. There were other units that were there for their patients, dropping them off. They were waiting for us. The ER doctor did a really good job. He he just he did his trauma workup on me. At one point they sent me to the CAT scan because they were concerned about the computer hitting me in the chest and where it hit me and they thought maybe I ruptured my spleen. And as I laid in the, the CAT scan, the CT scanner, I just fell apart emotionally. And I was crying because I didn't want to die. But I didn't want to die as Alan. As I'm in the CAT scan, we all have our moments of talking to the powers that we believe in. And I promised myself in front of the higher powers that I would not die as a male. This event, this accident, this epiphany of me seeing that I could have died on the job and knowing who I am on the inside and knowing the promise I made to myself, I needed to fulfill it. Two years later, I still hadn't done anything. Two years later, I was miserable in my life. Two years later, I was self-destructive. And I had to make a choice. And that choice was to sit my son's mother down and for the first time explain to her because she was under the impression that what I was feeling was some sort of sexual deviation. She didn't understand it. She didn't want to understand it. But I sat her down and I said, this is who I am. This is what I know since I was a child. And for the first time, she listened. She agreed to let me explore 
this part of me. Now, she did not know I was going to transition at that moment. We joined a, a support group that dealt with cross-dressing. And within three years, she saw that this was not just cross-dressing. And I was being honest and open with her the whole time. But as I progressed through this journey, as I call it, as I progressed learning about me, building my confidence as Christine, I grew and allowed that piece of me that was always there to be a part of me. Now, people ask me all the time, your name was Alan, why did you pick Christine? And the short version of this is when I was a teenager, I found out about a U.S. soldier named George Jorgensen, who at the end of his enlistment had dual citizenship with Denmark and the United States. And he stayed in Denmark and transitioned to Christine Jorgensen. Now, as a teenager back in the 70s, there was no internet. And what I could limitedly find out in the library without making people suspicious. But I always admired her for being brave enough. And this is in the this is in the early 50s. And she basically stood up and said, this is who I am. She had her gender confirmation surgery, which back then was very simple. Uh, but she lived out her life educating people and becoming you know, who she was as a spokesperson. So when I decided to pick a name, that was the name I wanted because I, out of respect to her, out of, out of, to, to just let her legacy live on. And that's what I've been doing. I've been educating. I talk about for those who want to ask questions. I'm there for sisters who need to have somebody to talk to. I'm part of an international sorority of transgender women that's now 25 years old and we're international. And a lot of us in the organization are either full-time, meaning they live their lives 24-7, or they're part-time. But there's also a big group within that sorority of ex-military, current military. Being a firefighter, there's the perspective of the, the male gender, the role, the machoism. And when I came out, there were ones in my own fire department that just didn't understand. They didn't get it. But I was brave enough to make that step into the world. We risked our lives. We, we take care of those in need. And I still do that today, working in the emergency room as a paramedic. I provide care to those in need. So April 22nd, 2006, I call it the birth of my journey because I made that promise. And that's my story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. 
This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.